All right, everybody ready? All right. We're going to begin tonight. I'm going to give you a word. You probably may be familiar with it. I'll spell it out for you. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Perusia. Anybody know what that means? Okay. No, Perusia. Yeah, well, that's that's the plan. That's the goal. Perusia. It's a theological term. So. What are you trying to say, my sister? Okay. 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 No, that's not it. It's a pretty. It's a pretty commonly used word. It, it shows up in a pretty a lot of books, like the book that I'm having right here. It's all over. It's all over. Well, this book's in the church library. This was in your house for a long time. Okay, okay. it was. It came from your house. Okay, the book came from your house. Okay, okay. what is it? Second coming. Yes, Perusia deals with the second coming. All right. And it's a term used frequently in this book that I have right here called The Last Days According to Jesus. In fact, they use it, at least at the beginning, they pretty much use it exclusively when referring to the second coming. All right. In fact, I don't even think they define it. They just assume that you uh, know uh, what that is referencing. So it's a, it's a term that is used by some, but it references the second coming. The only reason I gave you that word is because just as many don't know the word or what the word means, I thought that would possibly happen. I wanted to use that as an illustration because once you understand the definition of the word, parousia, second coming, well, once you get to the second coming, guess what? The confusion doesn't get any better, does it? People may not understand the word, or what parousia is, but when you say the second coming, there's very little agreement on anything related to the second coming. Okay? That's the only reason I'm using the word. The only re- it doesn't matter if you know the word or not, because you're familiar with the term, the concept of the second coming. But you should know that within church history, what? There's lots of disagreements about the second coming. And so that's what we have been, in a a roundabout way, we've been working on that. If you remember, for all of this, well, for the next six to eight weeks, we're working on Matthew chapter 24, yes? So go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, that there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And he, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What shall be the sign of your coming? When is Jesus Christ going to return? Everyone has their theories. Everyone has their different perspectives. And all of those perspectives really come into play with Matthew 24. And there's all kinds of different interpretations to Matthew chapter 24. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a little trip through church history. And hopefully this will be beneficial. I will be making, I'm going to use part of the book, The Last Days According to Jesus. I'll be using a lot of other things, but I'll be making reference to this. Now, some of this at the beginning, you may be like, wait, what? What were they trying to say? What? what, what? Can you summarize their perspective some of these I may be able to, some of these I, I'm, I'm, I may not be able to, but we're going to do our best here to uh, see what we can find. So let's start by going back to January the 14th, 1875. This is not going to be in chronological order, that's okay, but January the 14th, 1875. 
What happens on January the 14th, 1875? All right, someone was born. That was a good guess, all right? Someone was born on January the 14th, 1875. His name, first name, Albert. I'll spell his last name. You ready? S C H W E I T Z E R Albert Schweitzer was born January the 14th, 1875. Does anybody know when he died? September the 4th, 1965. Albert Schweitzer wrote a book, some would call this a very famous, famous, famous book, called The Quest of the Historical Jesus. The Quest of the Historical Jesus, which appeared first in 1906 under a German title, which I will not try to pronounce. Uh, Okay, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. (laughs) There you go, okay. All right. 1906. I don't know the exact like month or day. 1875. All right, the quest of the historical Jesus. As the German title suggests, right, and, and if, if we work on it, but okay, Schweitzer gave a critical analysis of developments in 19th century thought. All right? Um, he, there, there, he basically think about this. Let's think of it from this perspective. He, the book has a German title, right? We're dealing with 1906. Between the 1800s and 1900s, what was coming from Germany and Europe? Higher criticism, right? Okay, remember these books that I always leave here and I mention them over and 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 over again, right? The fundamentals, right? Why were the fundamentals written? To, co- to combat the issues of higher criticism that was coming into the church, right? Remember I talk about these all the time, all the time, all the time, right? How critical those books are? Okay, well, so you know that this is going to have some things dealing with this, right? So he embraces some thoughts of some in- individuals, but then he attacks uh, concepts of others, all right? Uh, as far as this he, like, he attacked the concept of an ethical value kingdom that is totally imminent and evolutionary. That doesn't mean anything to us. That's okay. You can ignore that. All right? Um, some would argue that this concept of an ethical value kingdom was uh, not rooted in the New Testament, but enlightenment theology and ethical philosophy of Immanuel Kant. All right? Don't have to worry about any of that. In other words, there's lots of discussions here about philosophy, what is in influencing what, and we can get into a, a lot of discussion, all right? Um, someone argued at this time that Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God can only be understood in the light of and against the background of the world of thought of his time. Stop right here. Now, why is this important? Because whenever we start talking about Jesus coming, the second coming, what gets brought up over and over in this discussion about the coming of Christ or eschatology or end times? Kingdom. Just say kingdom. Right? Just say kingdom. All right? The concept of a kingdom. Right? Jesus is a king. King has kingdoms. This was an issue, and in fact, in a roundabout way, think about it, leading up to his death, right? Are you a king? My kingdom is not of this world, right? Did, when they, they referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews, right? So this idea of a king and kingdom plays a part not only in some ways identifying Jesus, but what was his purpose? What was the spiritual kingdom that was at hand? Was there going, his kingdom is not of this world? Does that mean there's there ever going to be a physical kingdom? Will there be a physical kingdom? There was lots of discussions about this going on at this time. And there was lots of like, so 
When he talks about a kingdom, is, he refer, is it somewhat of a philosophical concept? Is it an ethical concept? Is it a moral concept? What is it? All right. Some argued that we, have, we can only understand it and, and the, uh, against the background of the world of thought of his time, especially of late Jewish apocalyptic writings. So some would argue, wait a minute, we can only understand what Jesus meant by looking at late apocalyptic writings. Okay, now, just so that you know everything that's going on here, what is happening here in all of this? It's trying to understand a biblical concept when maybe looking at the things outside of the Bible that may give us insight in how to interpret what's in the Bible. Now, this is a big issue in hermeneutics. Okay, so before, we're going to take a little detour here. How much does one have to know about things outside of the Bible to correctly interpret what's in the Bible? The average Christian believes how much that they have to know how much outside of the Bible to interpret the Bible. None. I mean, that's a common Christian. I don't have to go read a history book. I don't have to read a philosophy book. I don't have to know about Jewish, uh, late Jewish apocalyptic writing. I don't need to know any of this, but I can read the Bible and understand it. Others are like, what are you doing? All right, so this gets into a big uh, hermeneutical debate, and, and it's, it's an important question, all right? On this view, ev- uh, every conception of the kingdom of God as an imminent community and course of development or as an ethical ideal is consequently to be rejected. For it becomes clear that the kingdom of God is a purely future and eschatological event, presupposing the end of this world and therefore cannot possibly reveal itself already in this world. All right. So some would argue, no, no, no. If we look at it from that perspective, this is what they say becomes clear. The kingdom of God is purely future. It's an eschatological event. In other words, an end time event presupposing the end of the world and therefore cannot possibly reveal itself already in this world. That when they're arguing that at least in part, right, there were those who were like, no, we have to look at it from this perspective. And so when we think of the kingdom of God, that's, that coincides with what? The end of the world. That's what I want you to take from that. Now, why is that important? Look at Matthew 24 again. What are the three questions the disciples ask? When shall these things happen? Referring to the destruction of the temple. What shall be the sign of your coming? And the end of the world. Now, if, they're bar- if this was a present and Jewish apocalyptic writing, then that means basically what are they asking? When is the end of the world going to be? Now, is that a right assumption? Wrong assumption? Did they misunderstand Jesus? Or they understand the destruction of the temple has to be the end of the world. That, that could greatly impact how you interpret that passage, yes? All right. So I just want you to see that there's this discussion going on, all right? Now, again, they're referring to a number of other people here. When, when others speak of the kingdom's char- eschatological character, he uses the word eschatological to mean more than the future or the last things. Here the term carries the idea of an action wrought by God that is transcendent and catastrophic. It is not a future event that emerges through evolutionary development, but a future event that is brought on suddenly from above and an intrusion of the work of God. So others, when they speak of an eschatological event, that's how they're referring to it. It's a future event that emerges um, basically suddenly from above. All right. This concept of the kingdom of God was embraced by who was born January the 14th, 1875? Albert Schweitzer. He saw this as the key to understanding the life and teaching of Jesus. Schweitzer called this view consistent eschatology. Though he sought to interpret the life of Jesus against the backdrop of a transcendent eschatology, he concluded that Jesus' own eschatological expectations had been unfulfilled. 
The historical Jesus believed that the kingdom would be inaugurated by a catastrophic act of God, but this divine act did not materialize. So according to Schweitzer, Jesus was like, it's going to happen. And it didn't. And some argue that's why Jesus said what words on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the kingdom didn't come. The big catastrophic eschatological event didn't occur. All right? Okay? Oh, yeah, I'm not saying we have to agree with this. I'm helping you understand that when you get into eschatology, everyone just thinks it's like, you know, just sometimes I, I just, oh, if I can help you understand this. Christians have this weird way of thinking, all right? This, this is the way Christians think, and it's, it's kind of broken, but it, it, it happens to all of us, especially young, early in our Christian life, all right? See if I can illustrate this, all right? We think, in some ways, we think that somebody was just walking one day, and all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> fell from heaven, a Bible leather-bound. Here's God's word. It just showed up, boom. Perfect. There it is. And no one had any questions, no one had any argument, and people started reading it. And they didn't know exactly, they were like, okay, what are we reading? And then all of a sudden, they walked about another, you know, 10 or 15 miles, and all of a sudden, another book fell from heaven, and it was a systematic theology, saying, this is what you believe. And so, well, how many Christians are like, I read my Bible, someone told me this is what I'm supposed to believe, and that's how it is. And many pastors preach it that way. Hey, it's simple. It's, uh, there's nothing simple. Because all you got to do is take a little trip back. I mean, how far back have we gone so far? 18, what, when was he born? 1875. And we're back in 1875, and what's going on? Critical the- uh, higher criticism is all over the place. There's all of these views about what did Jesus mean about the kingdom of God? It's connected with, with Jewish apocalyptic writing and Jesus thought that a kingdom was going to come and it didn't come, so it was unfulfilled. And we may think it's crazy, but that just shows you all. You know how many crazy things happened between... Oh, well, yes, okay. But I'm just saying that they're not even worried about Israel at this point. But yeah, I, but you're, you're right. Some things have not occurred. But I just want you to see that all the crazy things that were, was going on, all right? According to Schweitzer, Jesus underwent a series of crises. He expected the dramatic coming of the kingdom at different points of his ministry, such as when he sent out the 70. So their argument, when he sent out the 70, he thought the 70 was going to go out, and guess what was going to happen at the end? Boom, the kingdom. It did occur. So there was, there was a crisis that he thought Jesus, that, it was all, that it was all going to happen, all right? Jesus had to face postponements, had to face postponements to his expectations. He finally hoped that his submission to the cross would provoke God to act. When that failed to happen... Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the anguished cry of a disillusioned man. No, 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 no. This, this is, we're going through history here. Okay, just going through history here. All right. This is the view of Schweitzer. Okay. Do I? No, 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 no. Just understand, this is the introduction of the book giving us all the different views. What the book is trying to establish, what I'm trying to establish, is that we always think that we come to a passage like Matthew 24, and we just think, well, just give me the answer. The answer is a long history of confusion. Okay? Okay. Well, right, right. But I'm just saying, Schweitzer just almost... With, I mean, and this is... I just want you to see, this kind of fits in perfectly... With uh, the higher criticism. It really fits in perfectly. That, that's why I keep saying, 
read these books, right? Okay, I'm going to leave them there until I'm dead. When I'm dead, I'm going to come back and haunt the place, okay? All right, I'm going to say, look, read the books, okay? All right, I'm not actually believe in ghosts, okay? All right, people are going to hear online, he believes in ghosts. Okay, no, I don't believe that. It was a joke, okay? All right, all right. here we go. I've got to verify, make sure it's okay. All right. For Schweitzer, the eschatology of Jesus was unrealized. This led to Schweitzer's concept of, what word did I give you at the beginning? Perusia. He called this concept perusia delay. Perusia delay. The writings of the apostolic church reflect on adjustment in thinking a movement from expectation of Christ's imminent return and the consummation of the kingdom to an expectation of his delayed return in the unknown future. So basically he's like, well, the, the apostolic church kind of like, well, wait a minute, all right? So what do we do here? It didn't happen. Okay, it's got to be somewhere down there. It's got to be somewhere. It's got to happen way far in the future. Because they didn't know what to do. Like, in other words, a lot of people were like, well, what happened? All right? Because people are trying to figure it out. Though, uh, though Schweitzer rejected the concept of an ethical kingdom, what do you think that means, that he rejected the concept of an ethical kingdom? Well, are you, uh, he rejects an idea of, a, of an ethical kingdom. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, okay. Possibly, or he's he's rejecting the idea that the kingdom is simply about a certain moral or ethical concept. Maybe we'll see. Um, he says he replaced it with an eschatological view. It was an eschatology that remained unrealized, though his view did not prevail among scholars. Schweitzer's work provoked many theories that, was, that wrestled with the problems he had raised. Okay? So, um, he, 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 in other words, he, he kind of threw out this idea that Jesus was just teaching a kingdom of ethics. Schweitzer went with the idea, he wasn't just teaching a kingdom of ethics, he was teaching a kingdom that was unfulfilled. Is that a, is that a, I'm, I'm summarizing it to the best I can. Schweitzer went with the unfulfilled kingdom idea, that it was unfulfilled. All right? That's, a, is that, that's probably not a great way to summarize it, but that's the best I can come up with. All right? Everybody got that? All right, now we're going to jump in time. Well, we're not too far. Let's see. Uh, well, we're going to jump. We're going to jump in forward. Uh, at least we're going back to the birth date. All right. Schweitzer was born January the 14th, 1875. We're going to jump now to April, if I can read my own writing, April the 7th, 1884. April the 7th, 1884. And what happens on April the 17th, 1884? Another guy's born. Very good. You're just, you're, Stephen's got it all right tonight. Okay, he's seeing a trend here, right? Every time I give you a date, he's going to say someone was born until I change everything up. No, okay. All right. The next thing that happens, C.H. Dodd is born. C.H. Dodd, D-O-D-D. C.H. Dodd. You can write that down. I forgot to open up the app here, so if anyone's posting anything in the chat, here we go. Well, earlier there was a bunch. Okay. Uh, yep, there's already two things going on here. All right. Okay, good. Uh, Twyla, she got the, uh, what Parisia meant, all right? Huh. All right. Uh, okay. So there's more there, but I'll, I'll get to that shortly. All right. So C.H. Dodd was born on April the 7th, 1884. He died September the 21st, 1973. I believe that's a seven. Okay. <laughs> 1973. If I'm wrong, someone can correct me, but I'm pretty sure that that's a seven. Okay. All right. Everybody got this? All right. So how would we kind of summarize Schweitzer's view? Unfulfilled. An unfulfilled eschatology, an unfulfilled kingdom, all right? 
Schweitzer's work was followed by that of C.H. Dodd, who introduced a full-scale system of realized eschatology. We kind of go from an unrealized or an unfulfilled to a realized eschatology. For Dodd, the eschatological kingdom of God is ushered in during the ministry of Christ. When does Dodd feel the kingdom is, in, is ushered in? During the ministry of Christ. What, we're way before, we're, we're, we're way miles away from that. Okay, all right. Do what? Congregationalists, yeah. Eschatology. And he believed the eschatological kingdom of God is ushered in during the ministry of Christ. The presence of the kingdom is a common theme in Jesus' parable, as Dodd notes in the parables of the kingdom. And in another work, Dodd adds this, and I quote, The the eschatology of the early church has two sides. On the one hand, we have the belief that with the coming of Christ, the fullness of the kingdom has arrived. The prophecies are fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is inaugurated on earth. On the other hand, we have the expectation of a consummation still pending in the future. There is some tension between the two and almost all the New Testament writings. They differ among themselves with respect to the relation uh, conceived to exist between the fulfillment which is already a matter of history and the fulfillment which belongs to the future. All right? In the fourth gospel, the language of futuristic eschatology is little used. For Dodd, the kingdom is essentially a spiritual reality that has been completely realized where? No, no, no. In the past. In the past. In the past. Remember, during Jesus' ministry. During Jesus' ministry. Okay. During during Jesus' ministry. A spiritual reality. Spiritual reality. All right? So, for Schweitzer, eh, that's his theology. Eh, it didn't happen, right? Dodd, it it, it already happened. It had happened. It was fulfilled. No, 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 well, hang on, we'll have to, we, we've got a long way still before we get to him, All right? And we're going to have to go back to the, uh, Sproul, Sproul makes a, uh, he leaves out a major historical thing in the, uh, there's, well, he jumps somewhere in the book and I'm like, what happened? He completely forgets the counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know why he does it in the book, but when I'm reading, I'm like, I, I kept turning the page going, where? And then all of a sudden he goes right to Matthew 24, and I'm like, uh, we need to go back in time. So I had to add a bunch of stuff here. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I don't know why he does that. It, maybe, maybe it's explained somewhere, and I missed it, the paragraph. If I, if I come across it, then okay. But all right, here we go. Um, uh, let's, so for Dodd, the kingdom is essentially a spiritual reality that has been completely realized in the past. The tension between realized and unrealized eschatology has plagued New Testament scholars in our time. This still has plagued scholars. Has it been fulfilled? Has it not been fulfilled? Do we are realized, unrealized? What do we do? Right? So again, just... A lot of per- per- person sit- people sitting in the pew don't even realize all of these controversies even exist. Why? Because the people in the pulpit hide the fact that these controversies exist. Which I do not know why. Well, I know why. Because I know the average person is never going to, I don't know, pick up a book like this and read it. Now, someone in this church did. Because that's how the book ended up in y'all's house. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's the one when I think very early on, she said, have you ever read that book called The Last Days According to Jesus? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have. And then she was like, oh, like she couldn't believe it. (laughs) All right. So some people will, but most will not. All right. Um, Oh, do I want to jump to his name here? Okay, I'm not going to give his name right now. All right. So attempts to relieve this con- controversy have been offered by a number of people. He named some people, but I'm not going to name one of them right now. 
Both of those scholars have sought to understand the New Testament concept of the kingdoms of God in terms of present and future. So some, some go with this idea, not realized, some go completely realized, and some go, well, yes and no. That there's a past, but there's still got to be a, a future. Right? Some try to go in that direction. All right? We're not getting anywhere as far as we need to go. All right? um, some, in fact, one scholar pop, made it popular, the concept of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. You may want to write that down because that is an actual theological view here. The already and the not yet. Dealing about with the kingdom. When John the Baptist appears on the stage of history, a moment of crisis is reached. Unlike the Old Testament prophets who announced the coming of the kingdom in the unknown or distant future, John announces his arrival differently, or the arrival differently, right? The Old Testament prophets were like, it's going to happen, and John the Baptist was like, the kingdom is here! Well, they're like, that's a crisis. That's a crisis. Was it there? Was it not there? How was it there? He is the, uh, the herald of the coming kingdom. John declares that the axe is laid to the root of the trees and his winnowing, fa- winnowing fan is in his hand. The image of the axe and the fan both call attention to the radical nearness of the kingdom. The image of the axe does not indicate that the woodsman is merely thinking about cutting down a tree or that has merely begun the task by striking the outer bark. The image instead is that the task is nearly complete. The axe has already penetrated to the core of the tree, hinting that one more divisive stroke, decisive stroke will make it fall. All right, so they're like, this is a very important and understanding that the kingdom is at hand. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom is inaugurated, reaching its New Testament pinnacle, right? In other words, when Jesus shows up, the kingdom is there. Now, what, what, do we, what does that mean by that, all right? The ascension is not merely a going up to heaven. It is going up for a specific event. His coronation as the king of kings and lord of lords. Insofar as Jesus presently occupies the seat of cosmic authority, the kingdom of God has come. Yet his reign remains invisible to men. It is yet to be made fully manifest on earth. So that's where you have, it has happened, but it hasn't happened. Well, they would say, no, it was completed, but there's another phase, all right? So this is kind of the, uh, the already and not yet view, all right? That's kind of the way we'll describe that, all right? Now, someone else steps into the, uh, to the scene here, all right? You ready? February the 25th, 1902. February the 25th, 1902. Someone was born. His name was Oscar Coleman. C-U-L-L-M-A-N-N. Oscar Coleman. C-U-L-L-M-A-N-N. All right. He dies, I believe it's January the 16th, 1999. I believe that's when he died. All right. You ready? Now he's going to bring in a famous analogy. You know what this analogy is called? The D-Day analogy. The D-Day analogy. The resurrection and ascension of Christ represents the D-Day of the kingdom. The decisive turning point and redemptive history. In World War II, D-Day was not the end of the war. But it was such a decisive turning point that for all intents and purposes, the war was over. What was left was a mop-up exercise. In like manner, the decisive work of the kingdom has been accomplished. We are living in the end term, awaiting the consummation that will occur at Christ's parousia. So, 
That's kind of like, okay, it's all been done, but now we've got to wait for the... So they're they're waiting for our return. He would be waiting for a return for Christ. Does that make sense? All right? Everybody good? All right, now, you ready for another date? November the 18th, 1800. I told you I wasn't going to put all these people in chronological order. Well, yeah, uh, they, they died after the fact, yes. But, I mean, none of them has mentioned Israel yet. Okay, the next person is the one who cares about Israel. All right, the next person cares about Israel. Uh, you ready? November the 18th, 1800. Yeah, yes. Okay, he's before all of these others. He dies April the 29th, 1882. Ah, very good. John Nelson Darby. How did you know that? Just a guess. All right, well, that's a good guess. John Nelson Darby. Okay, that that was a good way. All right. And he is sometimes referred to as the father of what? Dispensationalism. Look at that, Steve. Look, Stephen's killing it tonight. All right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in the minute you'll say something. I'm like, what are you doing? Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Here we go. Dispensationalism. I'm going to give us a little information about dispensationalism. I'm going to go to a completely different source because Sproul gives very little information about dispensationalists. He just mentions like, and then, in fact, I'll just, I'll just show you how he handles it. He doesn't, on all these others, he's got like a lot, of, a lot written. Okay. <laughs> That's what he does with dispensationalism. All right. Uh, let's see here. Where does he do this? In addition to those views, which has these long paragraphs or multiple paragraphs, uh, in addition to those views of the kingdom and eschatology, we encounter modern dispensationalism, which regards the kingdom as future. For dispensationalism, the kingdom will not come until the parousia. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm not going to do much with a dispensationalist. We're just going to move on, okay? He doesn't even mention Darby, okay? Which is kind of like, well, wait a minute. You mentioned all of these other people. How come Darby doesn't even get a mention? Like, are we going to deal with the kingdom of God? Darby doesn't get a mention? Yeah, I, I'm the way. I, in fact, in the book I wrote, you'll, if you see, if you'll, you'll look at it, at the top of the page, I'm like, I'm like, uh, this is where Darby goes, okay? I wrote it in my, I'm like, no, I think we need to mention Darby at this point. He just gets left out. And he's also going to leave out a very important Catholic theologian as well, which I have no idea why he would leave out the Catholic theologian, okay? Because the Catholic theologian is critical to his entire point of view. But okay, we'll get to that in a minute. All right, most everyone here is familiar with dispensationalism, right? Think of it this way. Dispens- a dispensation is a way of ordering things. An administration, a system, or a management. In theology, a dispensation is the divine administration of a period of time. Each dispensation is divinely appointed age. Dispensationalism is a theological system that recognizes these ages ordained or, or, or these ages ordained by God to order the affairs of the world. Now, you ready for this? Dispensationalism has two primary distinctives. This is what makes dispensationalism different than a lot of other things. There are two distinctives. You ready? One, a consistently literal interpretation of Scripture, especially dealing with biblical prophecy. Sound familiar? All right now, let me make it very clear. When we say literal, because a lot of times when someone says, oh, so you take everything as literal? No, we take everything literal unless the text clearly indicates it's using some kind of symbolic or figurative language. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we don't believe he's a loaf of bread. Right? Does that make sense? 
Okay, so you take it as literal unless the text demands, mm, that's not working out. Okay, but a, a consistent literal interpretation. Now this, why is this so important? Because we have all of these promises about not only Israel, but about kingdom and land and all of these things. And either we take it literally or we take it allegorically or symbolically. Dispensationalists are like, literally, please note, this is not Darby changing his hermeneutic because Israel came into play. Darby is dead before Israel becomes a, na a, a nation, which is somewhat shocking. All right? Uh, because you could argue the others were... They were looking at the world and basing their theology on what was not in the world. And Darby based his theology not what was in the world, but what was in the Bible. That's, that to me is interesting. Now, I don't want to, again, Bobby has said it before and, and, and it's very true. We don't, on one hand, we don't want to be too harsh on these people who didn't see Israel because there was no Israel. But it's just a reminder that we cannot base our theology on what we see. All right, I, I got an article today that they, they, they've just got a new discovery and it's, oh, we got to redo it. Uh, life was on this planet like mil, 300 million years before we thought it was. And they think now this is proof that life on earth came here from aliens and other space. And they're going to change it again. Now, look, I got no problem. You want to know those discoveries? You want to understand those discoveries? You want to be, if you're going to go into science, you need to know it. You need to understand it. I don't think we hide from it. But my, but for me, I'm going to learn the science and know, okay, this is what the world says about how man got here. Fine. I'll learn it. But my faith tells me different. And I'm not going to change the Bible to go with what the world is saying because the world, what they're saying, can change at any time. They've changed the dating of evolution 50 different times. Okay, it gets older, sometimes it gets back and forth. Well, that's fine. They can change it. Let them figure that out. Nope. Learn it, pass the test, write the papers, be an expert in it. But from a biblical perspective, it's not based on what the world does. Darby, I think it's just interesting that he comes up with a concept, and his concept is based on a hermeneutic that says, it's got to be understood literally. Right? Well, kind of like what we've been doing, right? Yeah, all the promises. So what's the first distinctive of the dispensationalist? A consistent, literal interpretation. And guess what number two is? A view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church in God's program. They're like, Israel's not the church. The church is not Israel. Israel's separate. Now, again, that's just insane. He's doing this in the 1800s. Israel doesn't become a nation again until 1948, right? Or 47? 48? Okay. Right. It's a number, so I may get it wrong. So that, isn't that amazing? Like, so whenever you're writing a book about eschatology, I don't think you can just leave Darby out of it. I don't think you can just go, well, dis dispensationalists come along. Wait a minute. We're talking about the kingdom here, right? I mean, the dispensationalists, like, I hate, so it's usually in reform world where it's like dispensationalists are dumb, ignorant hicks. They don't get anything. And I hate that. That's not fair. Now, I understand dispensationalists get a bad name because of the craziness that's sometimes associated with it. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. You know, you know, all the, you know, and I understand that. But what I try to do is don't, don't judge dispensationalism by the crazies that have, that maybe believe the same theology. Separate the theology from the crazies. 
This is a pretty, is there anything crazy about saying I should interpret the Bible literally and Israel's different than the church? How is that crazy? How does that make one dumb or, or, or like something's wrong with you? You know, you're not, you're not smart as we are because we're, we have, we read reformed theology. Well, I, uh, I read reformed theology too. I just, I, I like the literal approach because here's the reason I like the literal approach. Because I take it literally when it says a virgin will conceive and bring forth a child. I, I take it literally when it says that he's going to be bruised for my transgressions. I, well, those prophecies were literal. When it said Tyre and Sidon would be destroyed, it literally was destroyed. So, like, when I see prophecy after prophecy being literally fulfilled, how can I go to the next prophecy and go, eh, no. That has nothing to do with, I don't even like, I don't even like putting it in the world of reformed and not reformed. Leave the reformed and non-reformed out of it. It's just, how do I read my Bible? Does that make sense? All right, now, there are seven dispensations. I'm not going to go through all of the, all of the, everything here about that. We could, we could do a lot of talk about dispensationalism. But that's who? Darby, and I think, let me see here. Um, okay, no, I did not. Um, I think I had an article which re- literally refers to him as the father of dispensationalism. But, okay, whatever, right? To me, yeah, well, we, we could get into a whole discussion there, but we won't. All right, so they mentioned him, all right? Then, guess where they come from? No, no, they don't mention him. I'm, I'm saying they mention dispensationalism. Yeah, Darby is not even mentioned by name at this point in the book. All right, completely left out. Guess what is mentioned next? Boy, this, that would have nothing to do with this. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was doing so good, and then he had to keep answering. Okay, all right. What would be next? Starts with a P. Preterism. Preterism comes into play. Preterism. This is what he says. Likewise, various forms of preterism have emerged. Preterists argue not only that the kingdom is a present reality, but also that in a real historical sense, the parousia has already occurred. The parousia has already occurred. All right? Now, they... Trace, perhaps they say that perhaps the most important scholar of the preterist school is J. Stuart Russell. 1878. Don't write that down. Don't write it down. Because I have no idea why he goes to 1878. I have no idea what in the name of bubblegum is happening in the book. Okay, so I'm going to close this book. We'll come back to it. It's almost like he wants to go there because maybe he wants to keep this somehow in the Protestant world. But this is, you're going to go preterism. You got to leave the Protestant world. What? Do what? Yeah. Right. So what, what am I, what did I say? If you're going to go back to the origins of it, you've got to leave the Protestant world. Yeah, you've got to completely leave it, all right? So here's what we're going to do. Let me go back to my notes because I had to write notes here because I had to leave the book, all right? You ready? We're going to go back to the Counter-Reformation. All right? Anybody know uh, the dates for the Counter-Reformation? Oh, no. Way before the 1600s. Well, you, I, there, I, got, I got the dates in front of me, but that's okay. All right. All right. Well, first of all, let's do this. What's the Counter-Reformation? Catholic response to what? To the Protestant Reformation. When does the Protestant Reformation begin? If, all right, 1500. So I don't think they're going to wait to the 1600s to respond. Okay. So, and what council do they respond to the Protestant Reformation? There we go, the Council of Trent. And when did that begin? Okay, or 1545, depending on where you get your dates. So 1545, 1546. 
All right? And the council ends in around 1563. But when does the Counter-Reformation really end? 1648? With what is conclusion of the European Wars of Religion? 1648. And I did... I for, I always forget to look up this person's name, so I'm going to have to spell it out for you because I, I don't know if I know how to pronounce it correctly or even come close. All right, but here we go. You ready? At the time of the Counter-Reformation, and I don't think I wrote down, we may have to look up this person's name to see when he was born and when he died, okay? Because I, I didn't write this down in my notes. All right, here we go. At the time of the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuit Catholic by the name of Louis D. D. E. L-U, so his first name, L-U-I-S, D-D-E, and then his last name is A-L-C-A-S-A-R. Alcacer, is that how we would say it? A-L-C-A-S-A-R. Luis D. Alcacer, that's how I would do it, wouldn't do so. So at the time of the Counter-Reformation, so that means probably somewhere, I'm thinking somewhere between 1545 and 1563, but I, I don't have the date in front of me. He writes a prominent preterist exposition of prophecy. Just a prominent exposition of prophecy. All right. Now, why do you think he wrote a preterist view of prophecy during the Counter-Reformation? Why? Does anybody have any speculation? Play detective here, right? Go full-blown detective on me. What would be the motivation for a Jesuit during the Counter-Reformation to write a full-blown preterist interpretation of prophecy? I know you're like, what does any of this have to do with Matthew 24? It has everything to do with Matthew 24 because we've got to get to preterism, all right? Why do you think? Come on. I'm going to give you every chance to look so smart. For those listening online, we did not go off the air. That's just silence, okay? Oh, think, 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 think. It's counter-reformation, counter-reformation. Okay, why do you think a Jesuit priest would come along and write a preterist prophecy or preterist understanding or explanation or exposition of prophecy from a preterist point of view during the counter-reformation? What would be the motivation to do this during the counter-reformation? What did the reformers constantly say? Well, I can't say constantly. What was a common idea within the reformers about the Catholic Church? Pope is Antichrist. Yeah. That was a big common thing. Pope... The Pope and the Catholic Church are the end-time persecutors of the saints. But if you come with a preterist view, this is no end-time anything. That all happened. You can't be putting at the Catholic Church for some end-time something. Nothing's being fulfilled. It was all fulfilled in the past. The second coming already occurred. Does everybody understand why they would, they would be motivated to do this? Okay, uh, let, let me read the, the preterist definition again. Let me, uh, where is it? Okay, that's okay. All right. Okay, the preterist view. Preterists argue not only that the kingdom is a present reality, but also that in a real historical sense, the parousia has already occurred. 
If it's already occurred, then you're not looking to the Antichrist or the, or the end-time apostasy or the end-time persecution. It's done. So you can't be blaming us. Does that make sense? Does that help? All right. Does everyone, does everyone understand that? Okay. As I'll quote from someone in 1845 that the preterist interpretation advantaged the Roman Catholic Church during their arguments with Protestants. And a commentary in 2000 described preterism as a Catholic defense against the Protestant view which identified the Roman Catholic Church as a persecuting apostasy. Due to resistance from Protestant, Protestants at the time, the preterist view was slow to gain acceptance outside of the Roman Catholic Church. So at first, the preterist view was a Catholic view. Protestants rejected it. Because it was being used against the Protestants. Forget, no, not, I don't think they even rejected it because of their, they, they weren't rejecting it because of their view of the end times. They were rejecting it because they was making an argument against their hatred or their, their disapproval of the Catholic Church. I think they had, there was other motivations going on there. Okay. All right. Now, we have another, oh, we got a whole, we're at 8 o'clock. Okay, that's okay. We probably started late. All right. Okay, what's the dates for uh, Luis D. Alcazar? Del Alcazar. Okay. Uh, 15. Oh, I found it both ways. All right, fifteen fifty four, and he dies in sixteen thirteen. All right, everybody got that. All right, now among Protestants. Preterism was first ex- accepted by Hugo, H-U-G-O, and his last name is spelled G-R-O-T-I-U-S. Grotius, I guess, or Gratius. Hugo, G-R-O-T-I-U-S. He, uh, his dates are 1583 to 1645. Now, why does a Dutch Protestant accept preterism? Why do you think? Anybody, why do you think? Why would a Protestant come along and go, okay, we're going to accept this, I'm going to accept this preterism. From the Catholic Church. Why? Come on, anybody. Why? Because he wants everyone to get along. He wants to build a bridge between the Protestants and the Catholics. And like, well, we can agree with your... We may not be able to agree with you on justification, but we can agree with you on preterism. Right? I'm, 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 I'm kind of trying to summarize it to the best. I'll, I'll read from one source. A Dutch Protestant eager to establish a common ground between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church was Hugo Gratius. His first attempt to do this was in his commentary on certain texts which deal with Antichrist. It attempted to argue that the text relating to Antichrist had their fulfillment in the first century. Protestants did not welcome such views, but Gratius remained undeterred, and in his next work, Commentaries of the New Testament, he expanded his preterist view to include... Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? He expanded his preterist view to include the Olivet Discourse. Dun-dun-dun-dun! Dun-dun-dun-dun! 
Sproul leaves all of these, these people out. That's the one who comes along and said, the Olivet Discourse. What, what, what's the Olivet Discourse? Matthew 24. So the, that's where the, that's, he comes along and says, all fulfilled. All fulfilled. Yeah, I mean, uh, depending on what kind of preterist you are, the whole thing has been fulfilled according, I mean, that's the whole, I want to make sure you understand. The preterist view, everything has been fulfilled, even what? The parousia. What's the parousia? The second coming of Christ has already been fulfilled. All right? Oh, guess what else? He uh, writes a commentary saying it's already been fulfilled. The entire book of Revelation. Yeah, the, that's, that's the preterist view. Remember the whole preterist view? That's the, whole, that's the preterist view. Now, there's different kinds of preterists. I'm going to be... Sproul is going to kind of... He's going to, he's going to jump. So, that, that's, that's in the... So, the first one, Luis de Alacazar, right? however we say his name. He dies when... No, no, uh, Luis de Alaska, 1613, 1613, all right? He writes during the Counter-Reformation. Everybody remember that? Okay, that's where preterism really, at least is introduced in a, a written form, at least, uh, that's as far back as we can trace it. It's a Catholic thing, right? A Protestant comes along by Hugh, Hugo Gratius, 1583 to 1645, and tries to accept it. And then he, throw, he writes a commentary in 1641, and he says, hey, the Olivet Discourse in the book of Revelation is to be understood in a preterist point of view. Right? But it's a Catholic thing that's just finding some acceptance. Sproul, when he jumps into preterism, he goes to... J. Stuart Russell, 1878, and his book, The Perusia. J. Stuart Ru- Russell wrote a book, first appeared in 1878, called The Perusia. That's where he jumps to. To me, it's just weird. He's got these other people that you're kind of like, okay, so Schweitzer? I mean, do we even really, I guess that's kind of important to know, right? Uh, Dodd, I guess that's kind of important to know, right? Oscar Coleman, I guess that's interesting to know, but it doesn't really seem to do a lot, right? Darby, he just ignores. And then he jumps to 1878 to J. Stuart Russell. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're getting ready to give me, in fact, he, look here, he's got the entire outline of the life of James Stuart Russell. Entire life, when he received his degree, everything about him. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a book about preterism. Shouldn't we go back to Louis, Louis D. Alcazar and Hugo Gratius? Now, you, now, I don't know why he leaves them out, but I know why some people would want to leave them out. Why would some people want to leave them out? Yeah, that, because some people like anything connected to the Catholic Church has to be bad. Now, Sproul would not do that. Because Sproul, one of his favorite theologians was Thomas Aquinas. So he would not do that. But it's still weird that he leaves them out. So I don't want to, I don't want to question his motive. It just seems from a historical perspective, if I'm going to start looking at preterism, I need to know the origins of it. Wouldn't you think? I mean, he goes back to these other people that I don't even know why we're even looking at them. So let me all end with this. I'm going to end with a couple of things. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, just because a theology emerges within a church that you may feel apostate, does that necessarily make that theology wrong? If a theology emerges within an apostate church, does it make that theology wrong? Right, not necessarily. So we don't, we can't, because people love to do this all the time, right? They're like they'll, they'll be like, well, so-and-so believe this, or so-and-so believe that, and they were heretics, so we shouldn't believe that. That's just a bad approach. The issue is not 
we always want to know where it arises from. It may make us suspect, but the issue is, the issue is always, is it biblical? I'm not going to sit here and say we should reject preterism simply because it's a Catholic theology. No, our job is to te- test it and see if it's biblical. Does that make sense? I said, just, I just, we, 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 because so many people do that. Well, the early church believed this and clearly they were Catholic. So that's just a ridiculous concept. All right. So everybody got that? Right. I think that's important. You should always be suspicious, but you should not just immediately throw it out. All right. Number two, do not forget ever, 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 ever Darby and what he was doing in the 1800s, because that to me is just absolutely fascinating from a historical perspective. To go, hey guys, we got to take this literally, and Israel's different than the church. Do what? With no Israel, With no Israel. yeah. That's, like, like, that's an amazing thing for me, from a historical perspective. It would be different if, if Darby came along after 1948. Then you'd be like, hey, of, co- of course you changed your view. That, that's, that's fascinating. Three, third thing, we have to understand that trying to figure out Jesus' return and everything associated with it has been a long and winding road of confusion and debate. So it should always humble us when we approach the subject. We should be, up, we should be humbled by that, right? We, we, people have been trying to figure this out way before we, we even came along, okay? Right, so we have to be humbled by that. And then we'll end with the last one. This sets up the, what we're going to be doing from this point on to the, we're done with Matthew 24. And we're going to honestly entertain. Does preterism offer a logical, biblical explanation to the Olivet Discourse. We already did a little bit of work on that Sunday night, did we not? We worked on the Olivet Discourse. We looked at it. Can we explain it through a preterist view? And we'll stop right there. All right, I'm going to make sure no one's asked any questions. Probably at this point, they're like, we just want you to shut up. Well, actually, they probably already just turned me off and went and did something else, but okay. All right. Just a couple of comments. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to study the history of the church, to see what people struggled with, and we just let us never think that we are smarter than them. Let their struggle humble us, that we're just trying to figure it out to the best of our ability. And let us consider each position, think, think it through logically and biblically, and just help us pursue and search for the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...